Finding Happy, Seven Steps to Relationships That Will Not Steal Your Joy is the new book by me, Nikita Banks, a licensed psychotherapist and life strategist. Leverage the knowledge you'll receive in this book to help you with the process of obtaining absolute clarity through the use of guided self-exploration. This process is necessary to help you master all your relationships in 2019 and beyond. Go on Amazon.com or BlackTherapistPodcast.com and grab your copy of the book guaranteed to help you redesign all your relationships based on two basic principles, health and happiness. Get your copy today. Welcome to the Black Therapist Podcast. The Black Therapist Podcast is a podcast where we discuss the unique issues people of color face when dealing with mental health issues and mental health diagnosis. Now, if you are new to our show, I am your host, author, life strategist, and psychotherapist, Nikita Banks, in private practice in my hometown of Brooklyn, New York. I am available for both psychotherapy and coaching sessions, and you can find more information about that on my website, NikitaBanks.com. You can listen to our podcast everywhere podcasts are found, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, YouTube, SoundCloud, Pippa, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and BlackTherapistPodcast.com. If you are a mental health advocate or therapist and you want to buy our podcast merchandise, you can do so by visiting our site. And if you want access to our free mental health tips, free online trainings, discounted selective services, and resources, do so by joining our mailing list by texting "get happy" all one word to 66866. If you love the podcast, please like, comment, and share. We love to hear from you. And if you want to send me some feedback, guest suggestions, or simply to say, hey, you can contact us at our website, blacktherapistpodcast.com. Please be mindful that this episode and all of the information that we provide here is just a resource and a tool to help get you started on your mental health journey. If you are feeling any mental health distress or you are having any significant issues, please feel free to reach out to us so that we can find you a mental health provider in your area. Okay, let's go. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Black Therapist Podcast. Okay, so on this episode, I have my friend, Jenny Graham. She is a play therapist based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So yeah, uh, we're going to get into that episode in a minute. But listen, I hope everybody is still social distancing. I have lost more than enough people than I can count. Um, Friends, thankfully for me, and I'll say this and knock on wood, no family or anything. But, you know, it's just been very traumatizing uh, living in state zero of this epidemic and seeing so many people that I love and care for suffering. Um, again, you know, thank God nobody in my family has been touched by the virus, but everybody that I know has lost somebody that they care about. I have lost somebody that I cared about this week. And it was very, it's very sad. So, you know, as the, the, the state are opening back up and as New York City itself is starting to try to get back to whatever this new normal is I just want you guys to be safe wear your mask wear your eyeglasses don't touch your touch anything and touch your eyes your nose and your mouth and um you know stay home if you can not just for us but for the first responders and for the essential workers that are out here on our New York City subways or traveling throughout the world, just just be safe. A lot of us assume this is not going to impact us until it impacts us, but it is impacting me. So if you like this show and you care about me, even a small teensy-weensy bit, please, for the love of God, be safe for yourself and your families, okay? Because even just like on a small scale, this is the worst time to get sick any other way or expire any other way because... God forbid, like there are not enough mortuaries, there are not enough graves. It sounds so morbid, but there are not enough graves out there. And so, you know, just on a regular level to be able to have a normal death ritual of someone passing away and us, you know, gathering for either a wake or a funeral, those things are not happening right now. And so um, just be as safe as you possibly can be. And keep your family safe. Okay? That's my public service announcement of today. But, so, 
if there's anybody out there who records podcasts and you're doing it remotely like I'm doing, I'm I'm not gonna gonna lie. I'm struggling to get the audio together. So if there's any issues with with Jenny's audio today, please let me know. If you guys are having any, or if, if there's any um audio engineers out there who want to tell me how to fix like Skype audio or Zoom audio, the interview was done on Zoom because she and I were meeting for something else. And I was like, hey, let's do this podcast. And so the information within this show is very vital and it's it's very important. And so if there are any issues with the audio, please forgive me. But um, the content is too good for me to allow to for me to ignore, for me not to to publish the show. So I'm going to, okay? If there's anybody out there who has any show suggestions, um, guest suggestions, or general feedback on the show, please feel free to email us at blacktherapistpodcast at gmail.com. And we're going to get into the episode right now. Okay, introduce yourself to the people. All right, so my name is Jenny Graham. I am an art therapist. I am the CEO of Trauma Free University, based in, originally based in Philly, but we virtual now. Um, I've been working in mental health for 15 years, and I started my organization to create spaces for people with marginalized identities to feel validated, heard, and seen based on the reality of how systems impact our lives. Okay. And so you and I used to work together at a, a little place called CIS, Counseling in Schools. And one thing I always remember about you is that we did a, in the summertime, we used to do trainings. We used to train each other on each other's discipline. And you taught me a trick that since I no longer work with kids, I don't use, but you, you did a Tom and Jerry coloring, um, I did about uh, that student that I worked with who was older playing Tom and Jerry when we were in session. Is that what it was? Was it that one? I don't. Re- I don't remember the student story apart about it, but I do remember you giving us a Tom and Jerry um um thing to color. And I've never mm-hmm. known anything about art therapy. You did one, and then I don't remember the other guy did one where we had to do the family tree. Um, Mario? Is that his name? Yes. Am I, yeah, and my family tree, I still have it, but it was so, like, bright blue. It looked 3D. It was so strange. So I was like, how did I do How did I do that? But it was really, like, my family. And so you, what you did with the, or you taught me and with the Tom and Jerry thing was to give the kid a different color. For their emotion and I was like this is I never even thought to even do that so um tell them what you what you're doing now huh, well now things are a little bit of transition um ain't you know all. because we're now in this huh saying we are yeah. yeah um so I'm like should I just before because <laughs> it's changing right now um because a lot of the work that I was doing uh, predominantly with, like, change agents. So, and that's still true. Like, people who are, like, activists, educators, consultants, um, creative people. So, mostly people who are out there, like, really, like, actively doing something to change and impact the world are the people that I work with. And, uh, you know, utilizing the art. So, like, the art, sometimes it's, like, the art product, but sometimes it's just the process of how we're utilizing materials. And that really gives... It allows people to express and to externalize what's happening in their subconscious feelings and their subconscious world or even like pre-verbal because there's a lot of things that we go through that like we just don't have the language to explain them. And it's like, how do we heal from them if we if we can't verbalize them? So using the art to give life to those experiences and then we can address those things, um, whether it's just like the art itself through metaphor and then people can then internalize different experiences by being able to like externalize, have that like depth of perception to be connected to something but also to be separate from it makes it easier to address things that are like painful and difficult so that's like a little bit more about like how like the art therapy works um and what's also i've been doing a lot more looking into like the impact that our subconscious mind has how like 90 percent of our behaviors and thoughts and actions are 
our motivate like that motivation comes from our subconscious and that 90 percent of that stuff is unconscious that influences us on a daily basis so the art's been really cool to kind of create a depth of um deeper self-reflection where it brings to life things that like you may not be able to consciously access so even like being in school with that i remember having those experiences like oh like that's still there oh that's still a thing that just came out in the artwork i didn't know that was still a thing i thought i dealt with that um so being able to use it that way and now it's just been working with how do you translate that into a virtual space because it's obviously very different. Like I'm not in the same space. I can't provide the art materials for people. I can't show people things in the same way. So that's been like a learning curve now. Like, um, also like helping people to like incorporate their own, like the sound materials in their homes and how can we utilize those in, in sessions? Um, it's also been interesting. There's like a different level of intimacy that happens to be able to see a therapy participant in their home environment and how for some people there's a, there's a deeper level of almost not authenticity quite, but I feel like there's a deeper um, openness that I'm experiencing with people. Or like I'm feeling like I'm getting to see people in a more intimate way. And this is a side note, uh, therapy participants, I don't call people clients or patients. I really look at decreasing that power dynamic where people are like allowing me to participate in their life and they're participating in their own lives and we're doing that together. So I really look at it as like co-creating spaces, like in a therapeutic relationship. I think it's more intimate being in my, being in my home office, <laughs> you know, where I'm mm-hmm. Zoom right now. So just kind of like you being able to see what's in my background and seeing what's in your background and. Yeah. It, it does it removes that barrier right now especially when we do a lot of tele, telemental health stuff to being in an uh, office it may be an unfamiliar space it may be cold you know you're at subject uh, to however the the space is designed or you know how you connect to that space but in our homes it's our home mm-hmm. and so I think I do I do think it's a, a heightened level of intimacy doing it like this now as well yeah there's also like a different depth of uh willingness to share because i've been experienced that in like my own therapy and like in a virtual space i feel like it's been quicker and easier to just be like these are all the things (laughs) and so (laughs) because like i'm like you said like i'm in my own safe space and comfort zone because my home is definitely my sanctuary so uh I definitely feel like, you know, delivering information from that space has been easier. I feel that too, though, because I mean, I haven't, I hadn't spoken to my therapist in like four weeks. And so I had therapy yesterday and he's, you know, older, so he's not going to do this, but he'll do this. (laughs) So we were on the phone. So just me being on the phone with him and like talking and playing in my hair is like, this kind of just feels like a conversation. (laughs) Like, I know that this is therapeutic. But it doesn't, yeah. it feels different. And even seeing my clients like in their rooms and on their beds and their jammies and shit. I'm like, yeah. I know that this probably feels like the boundaries are removed. But I mean, yeah, I think, I think that, it, you know, depending on your relationship with your clients and your own boundary stuff, having yeah. to, to still be there because yeah, it does feel a lot more intimate than it, than it did previously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, whether that's for better or for worse. <laughs> you know what? I'm even seeing it in my therapy groups. Like, there's a post in the therapy group, like, um, it's like, what does your client see versus versus how you're actually dressed? <laughs> so it's like, yo, that's some that's some real shit. Because how you see me right now with this sweater on over my pajamas? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like how. I how I am and like I literally have on a, a pajama dress and like long like some long john pants. They look like old what's those um old long underwear? And I have my yeah. furry socks. Like the um I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Like I throw on some makeup and make sure my yeah. edges my edges are smooth just so you can see me on the camera. Yeah. You can Throwing an earring, and if I don't throw my eyebrows on, then I'll then I'll like put some glasses on so you can't see it. So they frames like camouflage. Yeah. My, yeah. My, my, that's been interesting because uh, I also teach, and um, <laughs> talking to my students about that today, like you you can just get dressed from the waist up, but you may want to be mindful of what's happening from the waist down. Because like as an art therapist too, the other thing is like I have to have 
have all the art materials to show people what to do, like as well as them having them. And so there might be a time I'll be like, oh, let me go grab such and such. And then like, you're going to see what's on the bottom half <laughs> if I just stand up. And then also considering like, well, if I pause my camera, I mean, I could, but that could also create an element of secrecy. Like, why would, like, if I, because I'm thinking if I was on the other end of that, I'd be like, what's pausing your camera for? Like, I would. I personally wouldn't have a problem with that. It's just like yeah. again, it's another layer of boundaries for me. I think if yeah. this goes on a little bit longer than this, then I will definitely like start getting dressed. Mm-hmm. I think for the first two weeks for me, it was like a foggy kind of situation. Most of the time, I will put on like a t-shirt or like a like a, a sweatshirt or something on over me, and it's kind of like my brand sweatshirts and stuff so they're seeing what they usually see me in, in the office with my leggings on and in my sweatshirt or in my leggings on or in my t-shirt or whatever it's usually what I wear in my office anyway so it's pretty yeah. consistent with like what what is usually happening but yeah I'm in my jammies now yeah <laughs> I hear you that on just like even the simplicity of like wearing like leggings and a t-shirt or something like that like that I do that at my office just having like you were, we were talking earlier about just like that flexibility that freedom and autonomy and stuff I think it's also just so important for people to see that like hey like I'm a regular person <laughs> you know like like I don't feel obligated to like always show up like in a blazer <laughs> if we were like extra dressed up like I don't necessarily have to do that to <laughs> excuse me sorry <clears throat> okay I'm good I think I was eating almonds earlier. I don't know where that one just came from. <laughs> Listen, you quarantined in your own home. You could call for as much as you want over there. <laughs> over there, you could call for as much as you want. I'm not judging. Um, but yeah, just because uh, I find it's really, it's really important for me, for people to to understand and to know that like I'm not I'm not trying to be the authority on anybody's life you know like my job I look at my job as like I create space for other people I definitely like you know hold the mirror up here and there I can definitely make suggestions after I've gotten to know somebody and understand like their needs wants and desires and stuff like that but I think it's really important for people to like because I feel like the people in therapy with me I feel like almost like a community of sorts because once again like most of the people who are in therapy with me are um predominantly people of color, predominantly people who, like, identify with uh, some of the same identities in terms of, like, educator, activist, and all that stuff. And uh, I feel like we have built this, like, community because I definitely have moments of, like, self-disclosure, like, to, like I, I call it transparency with them. And they're like, wow, like, I appreciate you, like, modeling that. Or I, I appreciate hearing that you're doing that, like, you're, that you did that, had that boundary, that you're, like, valuing yourself in, in, in certain ways you know and they find that like inspiring that like I'm willing to share that because it's like these are the things I'm trying to help them with and I want them to also know that like I also have my own journey and like I'm growing in this in this process as well you know mm-hmm. I feel like that's appropriate to me and I think too for us is is like people of color who serve people of color I had to learn that very very um early on so part of the the work that I did when I was interning was I worked in a uh, a homeless shelter, and you and I just talked. I told you that there were times that I was either you know homeless or couch searching or couch couch surfing, um, and so like I know what that looks like and I know what it feels like. But when I'm coming in as a you know graduate student at NYU and I'm in my you know, Fendi purse and my red bottoms and they're looking at me. It's, it, was, it was very difficult for them to be able to kind of identify with me because of the perception that they had of where I was. Yeah. And so I, I, I made a conscious effort and a conscious choice, even though I do like wearing the things because sometimes mm-hmm. you got to wear the things to feel the things that you need to feel. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah. And that's kind of what it what it is. It's like putting this face on and putting these things on and, and making yourself feel authoritative when we don't feel like it or, you know, when we, we sometimes feel like we're imposters ourselves and we have our own insecurities and our own stuff because we come yeah. from the same places and the same broken spaces that we're trying to fix in somebody else. Yeah. Um, I had to recognize that for me, it only made made sense for me to do that when it made sense for me to do that 
True. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Because there definitely are times where, like, yeah, I need to throw on the, bla- the blazer and the heels um, and go step in somewhere and let people know that, like, I am important and you'll recognize the value of who I am and what I bring into this space. <laughs> so that is true. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that that was my detriment at CIS as well. Because, you know, you and I were, like, a few of the only brown girls that was in that place. Uh-huh, who were saying things. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, and I, I kind of felt like after a while, like, damn, maybe I was too authentic in that space. And it felt it felt bad to not be authentic in that space, in that space because it felt like it was welcomed. And I'm not yeah. quite sure how it landed after the fact. You know, because I have thought about some, I've thought about stuff there, because my experiences there, like, I'm, I'm grateful for the experiences I had there, because um, I was able to take a lot from that, um, but I definitely felt exploited. Um, <laughs> I feel like uh, it was like, in theory, they wanted to create a space that was really authentic for all people to bring. So so that we could bring all of ourselves into the space. But I think it was like, once we brought all of ourselves into the space, they were like, oh, we don't even know what to do with this. I don't even know how to interact or handle this. Or like, then it brought up other people's stuff. And then it went back to like default of like how systems operate. Um, so I think they were like, you know, they weren't, they weren't totally ready for what they wanted to be doing. Although they were open to, trying but you know what i had a very enlightening conversation with robin well let me tell Mm -hmm. the story first and then i'll then i'll i'll share that um so there was this one training in the summertime we used to train each other and there was Mm -hmm. this one training where they were talking about i know you remember this (laughs) they were talking about um you know trans rights um People being gay, etc. <laughs> you know where I'm going. Yes, because we were sitting next to each other for that one, right? Because yeah, there was a long lunch that happened after that. So then, somebody, one of the one of the um, administrators, made a comment about being black was like being gay, and so I raise my hand because that's me and I'm like you can't you can't say that because for gays who are black yeah. it's compounded like it's definitely exactly. not the same like you can be in the closet I'm never going to be in the closet with my blackness I take it with me wherever I go Yes, I can't untan like it's not anything that I can do that yeah. makes that not not that and I, I just remember her posture changing and like she got real defiantly about, well, I don't agree. Yeah, and it was like, you can't, you, this is my experience as a black person, you can't tell me that you don't agree with my experience as being real. Yes, absolutely. you know I remember that. And I don't, even, I don't even know if she was gay, why she even, and, and, she was, and she was sitting in the audience, like there were people who were training us, who were actually... And then came in from when? Huh? Ariana. Um, because I still keep in touch with her on social media sometimes. They were from that organization called WIN. And WIN was like an acronym for something. When is women in need, but I don't think it was it wasn't yeah. that. It was it was it was Cassie and Dory. Oh, for oh, was that that training? That's when we did the ice cream. Um, I think it was the sex positive training because that was when it, I had the sign up that was like, um, I, I remember posting it on social media. We had to wear the labels and then we had to talk yeah. about sex. And, oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> I like anal sex. I like anal yeah, sex. I was like, I was being sexual <laughs> that weekend. <laughs> we had signs like yeah. anal sex. And he was like, wait a minute. Now I remember posting it on social and people were like, what the what the hell are you doing at your at your job? This is what we do at work. But <laughs> well, we had to get comfortable about like talking about sexuality and those kinds of things. And that was kind of like part of the whole thing. Yeah, but yeah, like yeah. I remember you you and me going to lunch and like looking at each other for a while. Like, we were kind of quiet 
And then I think somebody else joined us at lunch. I can't remember who. And like, we had to kind of like process like what was said and how it was said. Yeah. And I don't know if you know that after lunch, they, she came up to me and apologized. Hmm. Like Robin. I at, feel like I remember, because I remember you having a conversation with Robin. And I remember us talking about that a little bit after the fact. But I didn't know the other one. <laughs> oh, no. She, but I, I, what I think happened was Robin came up to me first when we returned from lunch and was like, she wants to apologize to you. And I was like, apologize for what? And she was like, well, she was wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, we talked to her and, like, you know, she was wrong. Her perspective was, it was, not only was it wrong, but it wasn't necessary. Her posturing wasn't, <laughs> wasn't necessary. And, like, yeah. you are the authority on your, on your cultural identity. So you, she, she didn't have anything to say that was valuable in that, in that moment. And her analogy was wrong. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, like, I had never been in a situation where, like, I expected white people to, like, apologize for white explaining. But it was like, oh, okay. But that yeah. was kind of when I felt like things were different in the, in the organization. That, and I told a story on, in those same Friday trainings about, like, um, coming home from Thanksgiving and there was a dead body in the street. And and I think white people were just like, wait a minute, what? And I was like, yeah, it happens in the inner city and stuff like that. So I think that they, I think I was really too real, but I felt like in my position as somebody who goes into inner city schools, we were working in hard schools and hard areas and hard places yeah. and, and all over, all over Brooklyn and Queens and the Bronx. And, yeah. Like we yeah. were working in some rough areas and I felt like if I did not tell them from my experience of being a child like those children that we serve, then y'all yeah. are going to keep coming in from bumfuck Idaho somewhere and not understanding the, who you serve. Yeah, true. And understanding like, what are, what are like daily realities or experiences. Um, and especially for like children and like, yes, that may seem scary or whatever, but like, this is also real. Um, yeah. yeah, like, you know, cause I remember us having a conversation when we were, um, I don't know what we were doing. We were at this, matter of fact, I was thinking it was the same time when we did the family tree thing or the um, the tree of life thing, um, whatever that school was. And we had a conversation. And I just remember like saying to you like that we need people like you who are real, who are like, this is who I am and I'm going to say what I got to say and how valuable that was. Because I think it was one of those times where it was like, I don't know if everybody here is really ready for this, although they need to be. And just like having conversations around like, either feeling burdened to have that voice versus like choosing like this is the voice that I want to have in this space and I feel like you know I do feel like my experiences there have helped me to like make those decisions like that I'm true that I choose to have that voice and that there's sometimes where I'm choosing like I'm not I'm not gonna be that voice like I'm not gonna carry that burden for all y'all or teach y'all um but there are times that I definitely will and want to um, and then also to have like the, the autonomy in that, that I can choose if I want to, to do that or not versus being always forced to carry that burden. Cause I feel like growing up, um, or even in like other previous jobs or like even in college, like always being kind of forced into that space and not feeling like I had a choice Yeah, cause you didn't, in a way that felt uncomfortable, you know? So if I understand correctly, you didn't grow up in a community where it was a lot of black people. Not when I was young, no. So, you know, different, different challenges. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I often feel like, again, having that balance of being like, okay, I have a voice and I'm going to exercise my voice to be an advocate for my people in this space. And then having white people believe that they have a right to my opinion as you know, from a voyeuristic perspective, as if I am a spokesperson for black people. And I'm like, I don't, I only speak from my particular experience, but I, but I am the, the authority of my cultural identity in this space. Yeah. 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 Like them having like that expectation. And I guess like, because when I was young, growing up in the predominantly white space, it was like, I was always burdened with that no matter what, you know? So then I think for me, it was really like, 
having the autonomy to choose when when I want to do that um, instead of it always being forced on me or just always being conscious of like I'm always aware of like having to do that or having to be that or, or always being othered and um <clears throat> yeah having to, to explain stuff but then it was also nice I feel like uh <laughs> my first experience of uh it's, it's just like on a small scale but my first experience of like true like white allyship was actually this girl Shannon who grew up across the street from me and like you know I've known her since I was five and so she would be like we were going out or whatever so she'd be in the bathroom while I was doing my hair <laughs> So she understood everything about black hair. <laughs> and it was great because I remember we were out somewhere and it was like people were having a water gun fight or something like that. And I was freaking out because I was <laughs> about people who trying to get my hair wet. <laughs> and Shannon was like, you guys don't understand. You can't get Jenny's hair wet. <laughs> so she like went off for me and like explained like why my hair is different and why I need to respect what <laughs> my need to respect what I'm saying and that I'm not just freaking out for no reason. Cause they were like, she's like, you don't have to know how long it's going to take her to have to redo her hair. And we have plans for later today. And like she went in and it was like, it was a real subtle like moment, but it was just like, but then it also brings up the whole thing too. Like, you know, people don't know if they don't have any like experience or connection, which I think also like that's a big thing too. Is like people are, need to invest more in like actually like having a relationship with people and seeing people as like real basic like as equal human beings with valid experiences um but different yes and that it can happen that also i think too that we can people forget that or just don't even realize that we can hold space for both of those at the same time like we can be different and our cultural identities our social identities impact us all differently the way we move to the world and experience things and how we're treated and we also have this common humanity. It's not one or the other. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think a lot of people struggle with having space for both. Like, oh, this, like, oh, we need to like have this common humanity and be all like kumbaya. And it's like, yeah, that that can't happen if you want to see me fully. And also, like, let's talk about where kumbaya came from because isn't that like a that's like a Haitian Creole like spiritual song that's <laughs> that's actually saying like come by here and it's talking about like inclusivity in terms of, like, connecting with God. So, like, if we really want to break down and talk about Kumbaya, <laughs> like, I think we, we should also probably research, like, what that song actually means, where it comes from, and, like, the intention behind that, because actually the intention behind that song is not what people are trying to make it to be. But that's probably a whole nother, uh... <laughs> I don't give Kumbaya a thought. That's it's not in my, my lexicon anyway. Yeah. And it's because it's been, it's been whitewashed. I mean, one could also say, you know, it's the white wash like MLK's legacy. That's a whole nother matter, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because Emma, Emma, the the way that MLK has been used is like the docile Negro. Yeah, which is not real. And it, it's not like it even makes any sense because it's not saying that by being a docile Negro, you can be spared any of the, any of the pain because he still, he still got killed. Yeah. So be a docile Negro and die anyway. I mean, but that was all really about his uh, his uh, passion for economic empowerment within the black community. Uh, you know, the part of this, the part I, that I have to be out. That's not what it was, though. I think it was about economic economic inclusivity for white people as well. Because well, that, empowerment. Yeah, because I mean, he also looked. Well, he looked at the intersection for class. Of course. I mean, yeah, all, of oh, course. Yeah. Poor, yeah, because yeah, if you th- if you think about it, like that's like shifting into like the um, Panthers, like that's why um, that's why they killed Fred Hampton because well, he actually was looking at things from a, of a class dynamic. Well, Hoover and recognized the intersection of that. Hoover like, had he was a lot of things going. But like, hmm? I said, Herbert. I mean, Hoover had a lot of things going. Jay had actually Hoover. He had a lot of things sure. going on with him. Yeah, yeah, but for like Fred, he was a little bit different in the sense that like. He was pro-black, and he also recognized the the need for people to unite on access of um, you know inequality in terms of like financial resources and stuff like that too. So he was also a little bit different for some of the Panthers in that perspective, where he embraced that. Um, but that was dangerous. So yeah. he was my favorite. <laughs> So for parents who are home educating their children and like pulling their brains out, um, 
Did I say pulling their brains out? That's how I was. That's not what I was gonna say, but I'm glad that I didn't say what I was gonna say. Yeah, I was trying to to say pulling their hair out, but I guess I was thinking of that other thing. But um, complaining about like children and dealing with the the, the mental stress that this is, has brought on our kids. Um, yeah. Is there anything that you can say, or any any suggestions that you? can make for art therapy to help them, you know, at least talk about the the anxiety that they're feeling. Yeah. Um, so, like, one thing that I'll first just name is that, like, art can definitely be used therapeutically, um, but it's a different experience to, like, have, because uh, art therapy itself actually happens in the therapeutic relationship. Um, so I just want to name that. Uh, I think in general... The simplicity of the simplicity of coloring. I've actually been doing some uh, some Facebook lives, and literally for like twenty minutes of the live, I'm coloring, and I'm inviting people to color with me, um, just to literally take a moment to pause. Um, so I think doing something as simple as pausing and engaging in a simple activity like coloring with your children, just to be together, to maybe be quiet, or as the parent to just listen to whatever is going on. I think that's a thing, and I actually posted something about that recently, is that um, children really need us to listen way more than we do. And, like, listen with your eyes, listen with your ears. I recently posted, like, listening does not involve your mouth at all, <laughs> you know, because parents will be like, or people will be like, oh, I'm listening to them. And it's like, are you really listening, or are you telling them what you want them to know or feel or think? Um, because we have to keep in mind that, like, everything is uncertain right now. And as adults, we have our own fears, we have our own anxieties, yeah. And children have them too. And and that, that, that we shouldn't diminish that those feelings are real for them also. Um, so just, I think, creating that space. And I think sometimes just, like, sitting still and engaging in an activity, even just, like, old school stuff, like, playing cards. Like, have a moment where you are all connecting and, like, interacting. I think those, those moments are going to be really important and valuable right now getting back to like old traditions of like cooking dinner and we all sit at the table together um, and like have a conversation. Um, little things too, like giving them opportunities to teach us. Like uh, I thought about having like, uh, let, let the young folks teach you one of some of the new dances. Cause I have not been like old. I'm like, I have no idea what these new dances are. I don't know who these new people are on the radio. Don't teach me, I ain't doing it. But yeah, well, <laughs> Well, that is not the attitude. I'm with you. I mean, my son is 22. He, I, he actually was in his room today, and like my door was open, and I could hear his music. And I was like, "Are we in Club Two uh, E? Like, put your air, earphones on, bro." <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. I also think that, and I, well, I know, I know that I, a lot of our children they don't have the emotional language to put to put the proper labels to what they're feeling as well. So even something as simple as like downloading a feelings chart off the internet and like having them color it with a different, you know, each emotion with a different crayon and kind of checking in with them in terms of like crayons every day, that that may be something valuable for them to do. Even before that, the adult needs to do that because we don't have emotional language. (laughs) A lot of the work I do has been because like I wasn't taught emotional language growing up. I didn't have words for how I felt besides, like, happy, sad, or angry. Um, so I think there's also, like, a learning opportunity that can happen collectively where, like, as a, the adult, like, I can start to identify what's happening with me emotionally. And my child can do that at the same time. And we also, that creates, like, some space, too, to recognize, like, how much we're feeling similar things. Because, like, for children, it may be harder for them to communicate what they're feeling, but it's also hard for adults to communicate what we're feeling. And we may literally be sitting in quarantine with three other people who feel the exact same way that we feel and no one knows how to communicate that. So I really think thinking about it from like a, like a collective standpoint that like we can, we can learn and grow about these things together because a lot of us, we just, we don't have that information because I know I didn't and I still feel fascinated sometimes. I'm like, Oh, that's how I feel. That is how I feel. (laughs) You know? I I think that for me is why I don't have, a lot of patience for a lot of the family work or to work with children anymore. I think CIS really taught me that kids are cute, but not in my practice. 
And, <laughs> and, and, and the real reason is because it's not that there's anything wrong, wrong with working with children. Children are usually open and they're pliable and they just want to be heard and, and have their feelings be respected. That's a simple thing for us to be a gift for us to be able to give to our children. Unfortunately, what a lot of parents don't understand is that when something is going wrong with the child, it's usually a symptom of something going on in the family and they don't want to, the adults don't want to fix themselves. They just want us to fix, they just want us to fix their children. Yeah. And you're right. And the child is speaking to the family system. Like they're externalizing what's happening and it's, it's not going to be effective as effective without the, the parent being willing to see that, like, I I influence the situation, and not, like, on some blame, you know what I mean? But, like, you do influence the situation as, as a parent, and, or as an adult in a child's life. Like, we impact uh, children. And, but it's um, hard. Like, I've, I've been in situations where I've taken my son to therapy before, and I'm like, oh, well, the problem is with him and his father. And then I get there, and they're, like, talking about me, and I'm like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> as, a, like, as a therapist, as somebody who's open, as somebody who wants to hear what my, my child is feeling. I I don't always want to respect what he's saying. I always don't want to hear that shit, to be yeah. honest with you. So even with me, just kind of being able to allow him to, the space to be able to say whatever he wants to, even if it's uncomfortable for me, and, and yeah. me being able to sit in those feelings and then deal with them afterwards. Yeah. Because immediately, I mean, immediately the first thing is like defensiveness. Or like I'm doing the best that I can, or I'm really I'm really trying, and that's not that that doesn't negate that it's not landing the way it needs to to land, and that it's not being received yeah. by the other person as the way it needs to be received. Yeah, yeah, I think like what you really said is so key is like being able to just tolerate feeling uncomfortable, like while listening, <laughs> and then like being able to like revisit that. <laughs> I wanted to fight everybody in therapy. <laughs> Like, yeah. hey, I didn't send you here for this for you to come in here and tell on me. I can't for you you to tell on your father. Like, it was, like, <laughs> yeah. it was that kind of thing. But you know, it is helpful. They are they are human beings and they have a they have a, their own voice. And a lot of yeah. us, we wasn't we weren't raised to listen to our voice, to honor our voice, to yeah. to have an yeah. opinion, to have thoughts, feelings, and emotions, and honor those things. Usually, we were taught to suppress them or to pretend that they didn't exist when they did. Yeah, or or that they have to conform to whatever the expectation is that's been laid out by the adults. Right. Yeah, and I think too, like from that perspective, even like generational shifts, like we need spaces for children to practice sharing their feelings and not feeling shamed for them, or to practice sharing their thoughts and opinions and not being judged for them. Um, because if they don't have spaces to practice those as children, how do we expect them to grow up as adults who can then speak up for themselves or value their thoughts, feelings, and experiences, which is what we want for them to do. Um, but yeah, there is a discomfort in like that, that shifting, I think from a generational uh, perspective, definitely because it's uncomfortable. Yeah. I've, I've always felt that with my nephew. My nephew is very defiant. He will not let you treat him any kind of way. He would, I mean, to to the point where he wasn't he wasn't going to just follow whatever it is that you said. He had, he had a a sheer determination and a a squeaky wheel advocacy for what he believed in, whether it was right, wrong, or indifferent. And I used to say to my mother, like, I understand that this is not what we want as parents. Like, we don't want to <laughs> deal with this as parents. But one thing about him is that when he makes up his mind about something. If he's right, he stands by that, and that's the kind of human beings that we want to we want to to be raising. Like, like yeah. his qualities in an adult would be amazing, but <laughs> trying to get that little boy to like wash dishes and clean up after himself is a whole another matter. Like, we just you're like, but right now you eat, and I'm gonna do this Like, I remember one time he he got into an argument with his parents, and he like tore up the house and got it, and I was like, but. First of all, why y'all send him over here to me if y'all didn't tell me that he breaking stuff up at your house? Second of all, what is going on? And I spoke to him and I was like, so what happened? Like, what is this this dispute with your parents? And he was like, well, she ain't going to just be talking to me any kind of way. Like, I demand that I be respected. And I was like, 
well, you are right. Your mother do be talking to people any kind of way. And she was like, exactly. And like he, and then he was like, and, you, and she ain't going to be talking to me like she talked to you. And I'm like, hold up. Wait a minute. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but me and her be throwing down. Like, we will be fighting and scrapping up in here. Like, we throw hands. So I was like, I get it. I get what, I get what you're saying. All right, you can come on and stay. Stay for the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but like you know, you want the things that we hate the most in our children make the best qualities for autonomous, headstrong yeah. Desu- ad- yeah. adults, and we have to be looking at them like, Dad, you know what? We really want these people to be grown ups. Yeah, and, yeah. and we're ra- and like, raising them in the way that we want them to go, mm-hmm. and being willing to like cultivate those things that we see. Um, and I don't know, maybe you can identify with this. Um, being an outspoken little black girl, um, I know that that was often frowned upon. <laughs> I was often looked at as like, like always being defined a troublemaker and all that type of stuff. And yeah, those are the same like character traits and skill sets that allow me to like, be who I am today as an adult that like has a positive impact on a lot of things. Um, and so I, a lot of the work that I was doing when I was working predominantly with like teenagers was like really working with those those students and children like to help them to start to recognize like you have a lot of leadership skills and you do have choices and you do impact the, the your surrounding and so like what do you want to do with that because i think a lot of times young folks who are like usually they were like belligerent and defiant they usually have a really good heart and they're usually like these little social justice warriors <laughs> and like they just need they need people to be able to identify that there's something positive about these character traits and this is how you can apply them in a positive way that will be helpful. Or um, or these are ways that you can use those skills to like have your needs met while also understanding that all of your needs are not always going to be met because that part of that is just life too. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think uh, you're right. They do have a lot of skills that were like, these are the kind of adults we want you to be, but it's, it's hard to manage that when they're eight and 14. <laughs> now, my mouth was reckless. My mouth was reckless. And as an adult now, I'm like, I wonder why I get a lot more beatings than I got. As a, child, like, as a child, I was like, Dad, I get beat a lot. But as a grown-up, I'm like, yo, I probably should have gotten spanked more. <laughs> but, like, I remember a girlfriend of mine, she inboxed me, somebody I knew from high school, and she was like, I, she's like, I love you, and I always love you. You know why? And I was like, it's random. Like, somebody I haven't seen since high school. And I was like, no, I don't know why. And she's like, I remember one day in gym, um, people were teasing me and they were calling me fat. And you went off on the whole entire gym. And I was like, what? And she was like, yeah. And she, and I was like, and she said, um, you know, she started to cry and I came up to her and I was like, don't ever let anybody tell you that you're fat. You're beautiful. Fuck all of them. (laughs) And I was like. I don't remember this at all, first of all, but it does sound like something I was Clearly, <laughs> that sounds like me. Yeah. It sounds a lot like me at 15, yeah. And I'm, and if you, I mean, you see I'm small now, but I was like 80, 80 pounds and we fight everybody in the, in the school. But I was like, I never even knew that I had that impact on her in that way. But I was like that. It sounds like so much like me, and I'm so much of an advocate to this day. So, yeah, just kind of thinking of all of my reports in school where they told my mother I talked too much and I was too social. (laughs) I'm like, I'm a social worker right now. Like, it does does kind of make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I feel you. Um, So tell the people how they can can contact you. So uh, I am on Facebook and Instagram at Trauma Free You, the letter U, so T-R-A, U-M-A-F-R-E-E, the letter U. So Trauma Free You on Instagram. I know, I'm like, am I spelling the right? <laughs> on Instagram and Facebook. Um, you can also go to traumafreeuniversity.com. And if you go there, if you're interested in uh, therapy or exploring how therapy would make it be helpful and beneficial for you, you can go ahead and book a free 20-minute connection session. I also just let people know that I currently do not work with insurance companies. And I do that kind of intentionally just in terms of uh, the privacy and autonomy that we can have in our therapy uh, experience together. Um, and I let people know that you can be in therapy. It doesn't have to be weekly. You can also do bi-weekly, monthly. Um, so those are options that are available. But yeah, traumafreeuniversity.com and book a free 20-minute connection session so we can explore 
how I can be beneficial in your life as a change agent out there moving and shaking the world. Right now, we need y'all. Like, we have, who knows where this world is going. We need, we need change agents out here who are able to envision new possibilities in a new world. And uh, you and I uh, talked a little bit earlier, too, that, like, it's important for us to invest in ourselves. Like, yeah. if we, I, I even think about it from, like, as an entrepreneur, like, from that business perspective, if I'm, if I'm willing to invest in my business, if I'm willing to invest in others, and I don't, and I'm not willing to invest in myself, what am I really doing? And why should I expect anyone to invest in me if I'm not willing to invest in myself? And things are going to change. And it's going to, mm-hmm. it's either going to change for the better or for the worse, but we have to, this is definitely a time where we're going to have to learn how to shift and pivot. Yeah. Yeah. And the not, people who are going to go ahead. And it's, and it's not going to be by choice. Yeah. Yeah, because the people who are going to thrive through this are the people who are resilient and, and know what we're resil- resilient, the people who are, who are creative, the people who are willing to think outside of the box and we don't even think the box exists. Like, that's what's going to really thrive through this. Um, and regardless of what some obstacles may be. Not to say that those obstacles aren't real because they're definitely real, but also thinking about the fact that, like, a lot of a lot of people who are resilient are already survivors, and like we said, there's an opportunity to pivot that survival into thriving, because a lot of a lot of people who who know how to survive are some of the most resilient, creative people who already have the skill set that's going to be necessary to get through this. Absolutely. Well, it's great talking to you. You too. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's good to see you too. It's been a minute. You too. Uh, right, we've been talking yeah. about like getting together and being in Philly and stuff. And I'm in, I'm in and out. So, but like, yeah, this is this was not as nice as it would be if you were here and I get to hug you. But it was nice. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. But we'll definitely uh, once, whenever it is, <laughs> this blows over. Right, that we get off a of punishment. Once again, we want to thank Jenny Graham for coming on the show today and make sure that you check her out on her website as well as her social media platforms. Okay, everybody, please be safe and be well. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of Black Therapist Podcast. Once again, you can follow us on all our social media sites at Black Therapist Podcast on Instagram and on Twitter, as well as Black in Therapy on Facebook. Or you can follow your host, me, Miss M-S-N-I-K-I, thanks, on Instagram and Twitter, as well as you can find out any information about me at Nikita, N-I-K-I-T-A, banks.com and on the show's website, blacktherapistpodcast.com. And don't forget, if you want to send us any general feedback, show suggestions, uh, show topics, or guest ideas, please feel free to drop us an email at blacktherapistpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Be well.